Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grade traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market Report for week commencing 7th of March 2022. Terrible things are happening at the moment in Europe. The price of cereals have gone absolutely out of a range that any of us are used to. It's particularly strange times. There's no joy or enjoyment in this market going up. Yes, you as a business might be making or losing money. One would assume that most people have got themselves sorted out to not be short of it. It is a real mess and it's not very pretty. But, you know, we are in an industry that has to function and the price of things go up because of the reasons that are being talked about. Bluntly, the Ukraine is a big supplier of grain to the world, as we all know, and it disproportionately grows grain compared to what it uses. And that vital export tonnage for the old crop at the moment is not getting shipped. So the people who've got that stuff bought have got to replace it. So old crop's gone through the roof. As I record this, and I never thought I'd see this actually in my career, the wheat price is offered at 300 and the last trade was 294 for May London Futures, which is absolutely, well, it's historic. Let's leave it at that. And the prospects for obviously next season are implicated by will they plant the stuff? I mean, in four, five, six weeks time when they're supposed to be really busy, what is going to be the situation in that country? Who's going to be there to plant it anyway? And when the Russians take control of it, I don't know how easily it's going to be for them to get on and farm. Let's face it, you know, if a farmer is still breathing and he's living on his land still and the Russians give him some assurance that he's not going to get shot while he's doing it, a farmer is a farmer and the instinct is to get out there if the conditions are perfect and do your job. I suspect the infrastructure, you know, if there's a bridge down between a couple of your fields, then it's not going to be very easy to get across. And there's got to be issues with fuel, with the plants we've seen blown up, and there's got to be issues with all of the inputs So it will have an impact on next year's harvest and at the moment it's total speculation on what it really means and how many tons are going to be missing. So the whole industry is second guessing. Certainly I don't expect any analyst or any algorithm or anybody expected a rocket to hit a nuclear plant which apparently happened this morning albeit it hasn't made the reactor go off but it's 10 times bigger than Chernobyl was and it seems a little bit of a nutty move. Anyway, Novichok coming my way. So let's get on to the realities of price. Well, X-Farm, I guess, technically, X-Farm feed wheat for May. Bearing in mind the market is trading at discounts to the futures. The futures is living in its own world at the moment. But let's say it is something like 280 X-Farm. You'll get an excess of that. But at time of recording, the futures have just traded at 294. The best bid's 288 and the best offer's 300. So the range is outrageous. The price is outrageous. Pick a day, pick a moment, and then sell it to your favourite merchant and go, I hope you make a tenner out of it mate because hedging it isn't much fun either so feed wheat is through the roof 
Feed barley is the poor relation relatively in terms of premium, but it's traded in excess of 230x farm, probably worth 240x farm now. If people need barley, it's certainly a cheap alternative for the consumer. The real casualties in terms of price in this industry is the animal sector, and I hate to think of what some of those balance sheets are looking like, especially bearing in mind the miseries in the pig sector and getting the stuff moved and the lack of butchers through, you know, well, we daren't say Brexit, but, you know, the lack of people working in that sector so that's a mess and then inevitably will be some damage done to some of those accounts so that's old crop feed wheat that's old crop feed barley new crop feed wheat the futures are trading 239 as we speak that's again a very very high forward price it gives x farm value in round figures for now about 230 i guess which makes harvest about 225 or something like that You can tell by my voice probably that it's a very fast-moving market and very difficult to read. And none of us are feeling particularly great. All of us got the news feeds on and the pictures keep showing up on the screen. It's very relevant to the market, so we don't normally watch the telly all day long, but here we are. And yeah, these are amazing prices for farmers if you look at it in a cold light of day. The inputs for this year are largely in place, I would like to think. So we have a very, very positive looking year in the context of you. If you can deliver the goods and produce the big, big crop that we're promised, then you're going to be selling it well in excess of production and it's going to be an opportunity to put some money in the bank. However, let's be very clear, it's a double-edged sword. You know, lots of fertiliser comes from Russia for the whole of the world. He will not be sending it to the West. Gas will probably not be coming to the West either, so we're all going to have to change the way we live a bit, put on another jumper. But production of grain, which is the thing that interests us most is a, from a professional perspective, is inevitably going to be affected by a lack of inputs. So the farmers that might well be benefiting this year may well not be benefiting the year after. So let's all be conscious of that. And More importantly, there may well be a lot less tonnage to trade. I might be being alarmist with that. I might be wrong and I might not have anticipated the incredible strategy of the UK government that thinks well ahead about food and production and things like that and fertiliser production in its own land. But that was a little dig there in case you didn't spot it. Right, oilseed rape, old crop, we have paid £640 a tonne with bonuses and what have you that's about the value at the moment it has been a little higher than that it's all over the place new crop at the moment harvest 560 per delivery straight into one of our stores on the day you cut it if you want plus bonuses so high prices for rate high prices for cereals malting barley goodness knows yeah there's a premium in there above the feed price lots of spring barley should go into perfect conditions if people have been patient and waited for early march it's got a good forecast over here so that's very positive i would say the land looks good a little bit cool but it's going to be dry and if you ignored the miseries of the middle of europe we're in a good place but you obviously can't ignore that Anyway, the chat today is with Martin Bailey from Baird's Malt, and it's a completely good, happy conversation about the process of malting. He's a maltster, the guy who actually does the malting, and he's got all that knowledge there. It's great. He said, I don't know, I've got not a lot to say. Ask him a couple of questions, and out pours the knowledge. So if anybody ever wanted to know why nitrogens are more money for low nitrogens, or why they want stuff dry, or why they want stuff bold, here is the answer to all your questions, and it's free from any talk about war and misery. So please enjoy that and thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. If ever there was a time to own central grain store tonnage, it's now. Yeah, Grain at Cantley takes the worries and stresses of grain drying and storage away. 
Members of the store can harvest without delay and can bring their produce in the day it comes off the combine, all with discounted drying and servicing charges. Call 01493 700 447 or 01263 731 550 for details. Yeah, Grain, providing the grain handling you need. Right, having had a really good podcast the other day with a maltster, the buyer of the maltings, Bob King, today I've got with me the actual man who turns water into wine or turns the barley into the malt. So I've got with me Martin Bailey from Baird's Malt. Good morning. Good morning. And he's another one of these people who's walking past the door and I thought, ah, good opportunity for a bit of education for some of you uh, who really would like to know what happens in the malting process, but dare and ask because you've been in the trade too long and you should know by now. So the opening question, Martin, is, you know, in a perfect world, what sort of barley turns up, you know, that you tip into your steep? Well, I think first things first, maltings need to be a custom led business. So we need to think about what type of malt we're going to make for what customer. Generally speaking, you're going to want a bold grain that holds plenty of starch for a brewer or distiller to turn into alcohol. Yeah. The nitrogen level needs to be consistent, but I mean, if we're making distilling malt for the Scotch whisky industry, that needs to be a very low nitrogen. Yeah. Why can't you use that? You know, it's 166, you've kicked it out or whatever. The moan is from farm. You know, what is the dynamic of the nitrogen level? Why is it so important on distilling? Really will judge their malt on how many litres of alcohol they will generate from one tonne of malt. The lower the nitrogen, the more starch is available within the grain, therefore the more alcohol is available. Okay, that's it. That's really... It's that simple. It really is that simple. High nitrogen barleys can produce, for example, higher colour malts. Mm -hmm. Distillers aren't interested in that. Other types of malt consumers are. If it's a grain distillery, it's a different game altogether. A grain distillery will use a small proportion, perhaps 10, 15, 20% of very high nitrogen barley, Mm -hmm. purely for its enzyme content, to convert other grain cereals into alcohol. Okay, that's getting a bit heavy for me. but There's there's quite a bit of complexity to it. So keeping our feet on the ground in terms of back in that low nitrogen, because not every year produces perfect low nitrogen barley, as we know. And some years produces perfect low nitrogen barley, but there's some bits around the outside of the barley that aren't quite right, Mm. like this one. We're enjoying at the moment, he said, with the word enjoying. So if it's a high nitrogen year, the distiller could move the goalposts a little bit just get lower yield out of the barley he's delivered and consequently would have to pay a lower price to get the same net results. That's how that would work. Yes, I think in a nutshell, that's a good summary. Yeah, and ideally, you don't want to be messing around with your process particularly because you want low nitrogen, so let's draw a line and stop messing around. Yes, ideally. There are other impacts to nitrogen as well within the malting process. High nitrogen barleys tend to take up water a little bit slower. Mm -hmm. They're a little bit harder to modify. So they don't flow through the process as easily as a lower nitrogen barley might. Modify? What does modify mean? Brilliant question. That is what we're trying to do in the malting process. Barley grain, and you can malt any grain cereal, but barley is one of the most common. It's a hard grain. It's full of starch. It's full of protein, but it's not a form that you can use very easily to produce beer or whiskey or a malt extract. You've got to convert that starch and that protein into a form you can use. So the malting process just does the natural germination process of the grain and harnesses that to convert that starch into a form you can use. And is the moment when it's exactly perfectly ready just experienced to your eye or do you actually have a machine that says, this is the moment, turn off the water, put on the there's, there's a lot of experience to it and obviously your maltings, you tend to put a batch into process each day. It takes about seven days to make a batch and you're constantly learning, you're watching your current crop of barleys and how they're performing and you're tweaking your process to get the best out of it. 
Commercial maltings very much run on time cycles. So you could potentially give the grain more processed time and produce a better quality malt. But obviously then you're producing far less malt per year and your costs base changes accordingly. So we're trying to do the best job we can with the grain in a reasonable time frame. Yeah, this year's been a little bit difficult, hasn't it? I mean, there was a point in the middle of harvest when we all realised the winter barleys were quite thin Mm. and the spring barleys had issues and the parameters had to be shifted a bit, Mm. didn't they? They did. And I think as a maltster, we have to be customer-led. There are specifications that we have to meet. Mm. The sooner we realise a crop isn't perfect, the sooner we can start talking to our customers, the better. Mm. So we can then make decisions on what more materials we can bring in. Because at the end of the day, you can't malt fresh air. You can't malt pound note. You've got to have some grain to malt. And I think the industry needs to be, the whole supply chain needs to be quite open with each other in these awkward years. So it's only something I've seen in the time I've been in the industry, which is just about 25 years now, is we used to have one dodgy crop in the perhaps every four or five years. It now seems to be every other year is a poor crop. Well, there's an issue with this climate change. Last year we had, you know, low nitrogen across the board, but it rained all the way through half. So the issue was the germination getting Mm. a bit dodgy, Mm. which was a separate issue to the two previous years where up here we had a very dry April and May and it just got saved in June, but the nitrogen levels were high. And I think that's more the norm now. I think we're going to see higher nitrogen years more regularly because of the weather pattern that we get Mm. when it really needs rain. It's going to be getting sunshine in May, I think. Yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that was very prevalent this year in certain areas was ergot, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, that's going to become a bigger problem. I think this year is certainly the worst year I've ever seen for ergot. The amount of ergot we've seen and how widespread it is, Mm. it's been pretty unprecedented, I think. Where some ergot barley deliveries into the maltings every year, but it's often quite localised. It's often quite small amounts, but it's been very widespread. Well, one wonders whether that's a direct result of direct drilling. I mean, you know, Mm. the ergot is a spore that is in the soil that sporulates at the moment when the grain is flowering. If you've ploughed, you've probably buried the spores and reduced the chances of it being there. Plus the margins around the outside of the field, Mm. lots of the grasses carry ergot. You know, they flower exactly the wrong moment. They've always got ergot in them, a bit like rye, which Mm. had masses of ergot. So it's all about the flowering at the time of the ergot spores. But up in this corner, we're fortunate with our rotation with sugar beet potatoes, etc., etc., and all of the other crops we're able to grow, in that we see the ground turned over quite regularly. Mm. Mm. And I think that's why we haven't got the ergot. But this move to direct drilling is probably going to mean we're going to see lots more of it. Yeah, and the malting industry has always Mm. had a zero-tolerance policy with ergot. Mm. And perhaps there needs to be a discussion about that. Obviously, ergot is a food safety issue and quite a serious one. But our customers need malt. If there's a factor that's changing, and whether that's the nitrogen content, whether it's ergot, whether it's anything, there needs to be a discussion within the industry about how the industry best copes with that. And if it means that our standards have to change or alter slightly, notwithstanding how important food safety is, Mm. then then that may be the way we have to go. I mean, the on-cost of... You know, take it away, clean Mm. it, bring it back. 10, 15% of the cost added or taken off of the farmer, which makes malting barley less attractive. So they think, well, I can't be bothered to grow that. I'll grow a crop that doesn't get ergot rejections or because they can tolerate it. It's got so many parts per billion they allow or, you know, the tolerance level is more easily achieved. So it is one of the threats to the industry, I think, in terms of its attractiveness to farmers as a crop. I think the continuity of supply is probably, it's been an issue forever in the malting industry, but certainly the last 10 years, that idea of farmers grow something else without the risks of associated with malting barley has become even more important and i can't see that changing they're going to be growing flowers aren't they george eustace is going to give them higher level stewardship whatever yeah what do you think uh, sunflowers 
tulips? No, 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 like you know, pretty blue ones and okay. um, have a few bees. Well, one of the things that's happening at the moment is people are drawing lines in the middle of their fields to show where the block is that will take their 36-metre sprayer, go up and down 10 times with it, and then that's the end of the farming. The field round all of the scoots and the posts and the ditches and the ponds don't get farmed. That's where the flowers grow. And mm. I think, you know, we are going to see a reduction in acreage purely through that alone, which mm. reduces the cost of producing it. I'm saying all of this on the basis of the prices we were looking at historically, but with what's gone on in the last two weeks, point of recording, we're in the middle of Ukraine onslaught and old Vladimir's managed to stick a rocket into a nuclear power station today. So we're not feeling overwhelmingly happy about that. So assuming that we're still breathing and we haven't been nuked, you know, the price of cereals has gone through the roof, Mm -hmm. which may mean that there's an inclination to start planting some of those bits they were going to cut out. I guess as a grain trader and as a maltings who wants supply. The more choice we have, the better from our point of view. Yeah, definitely. The more tons there are, the more margin we can make on more tons. So yeah, that's greedy, isn't it? These are very funny times. I mean, the malting barley crop is attractive in the context of its nitrogen usage. So you should be good for some supply. Yeah, there's a big market there. So there's going to be somebody somewhere will produce barley that we can use because there's plenty of customers out there that that want and need malting barley. So, I mean, you're in Whitham in Essex, and I always mm. take the mickey out of Essex for whatever reasons I feel like. And, yeah, it's a big milling wheat growing area. There are some regions around sort of the tendering hundreds sort of area just all across there, to the there coast. There is, yeah. We can get a decent proportion of our barley from quite a small circle with around the maltings. Obviously, we have to go a little bit further afield. But we're not. We're on the north of Essex, so we're not too far away from Suffolk and Norfolk and the more traditional malting barley growing grounds. Well, you're here today because we trade with you, and, you know, it's obviously vital for your average advertising to have champagne area barley in amongst your mix isn't it <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and we're always a bit over the top proud of that one so yeah do you prefer to malt distilling grain or do you prefer to malt stuff that's going to go what, on a personal level yeah you hull it in there that'll go for beer that'll be fine no 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 <laughs> i'm a real maltster if you cut me in half i've probably got endosperm inside me I like making all sorts of malt types personally. I've got no particular preference. I mean, we make a small amount of Munich malt, for example, which is a very specialist type of malt for a specialist type of beer. What is Munich malt? Well, Munich malt is named after Munich, Munich, obviously, where a certain style of beer was traditionally brewed. It's a very dark lager. It requires quite a dark malt, darker than an ale malt, a very dark brown beer. There is a small market for it, both in the UK and abroad. We do sell some to North America. So they're quite specialist batches. We make only perhaps three or four of those a year. So they're quite good fun. And these little specialist things are good fun to work on. So do you get a chance to sort of tweak things a bit? And Oh, absolutely, yeah. As we all know, every crop beer is different. That's one of the things we've been talking about. If you're making 30,000 tonnes of distilling malt, well, you've got plenty of chances to practice. Mm. You're making lots and lots of batches and you can tweak things. If you've only got two or three batches of Munich malt to make, or even more relevant to the local area, Marisotta malt, mm. you haven't got so many chances to get that right. And they are the fun things. They really are the fun part of the malting management trade, really, working with the crop to make a very specific product. So, I mean, we're not involved in Marisotta. That's very much in a sort of closed box, if you like. But, I mean, it's had a phenomenal run. It's mm. going to be going for lots more years yet because it is ye olde variety. 
there's challenges to it. So well, we're a customer-led market and we have to be. Customers want it, so we still buy the grain, we still malt it, and we still sell it. Mm-hmm. And there are some real challenges to it. It doesn't malt quite as easily as perhaps some of the newer varieties would. There are some more inputs to it in mm-hmm. terms of water. Mm-hmm. And there are more losses to it because it's a small grain. Mm-hmm. But there's some customers that, that like it. And it does make a lovely malt when you get it right. Actually, that's a point. The small grain aspect, not specifically of Marisotta, but when you have a year where it's very thin... If you get stuff under, I don't know, 75 retention or 80 retention, Mm. is it just best to kick that stuff out and forget it and not bother? Yeah, once again, proportionally, the thinner the grain, the less starch Starch. there is inside the grain. So it's less attractive to brewers, distillers, malt extract producers. The whole system of barley cleaning both prior to malting and after malting, it is set up and it's effectively a set of sieves. Mm. And those sieves are sized to an average size grain. On a thin year, you're going to lose far more grain through your cleaning process, which obviously changes the economics of it all. Yeah, very much so. I mean, last year, the winter barley, the early stuff was really thin and we struggled. And we tried to preserve stuff. We tried to screen it up and screen it up. It never got any better. Yeah, one of the specific things we make at Whittam is we have a roast house. So we make quite significant volumes of crystal malts and roasted malts that brewers use in usually smaller proportions to give some different colours and flavours to their beers. But we specifically use winter barley for producing roasted malts. And once again, thin grains are not particularly good for that. We want bold grains that we can malt and roast to give a consistent product. So we get back down to the base sample, don't we? We've got size because of the start. So that's why you like big fat beasts. And the nitrogen level, because the extraction level is greater and it's much more expensive, the nitrogens are, hence the lower price for high mm. nitrogen barley. The moisture level, what about, you know, because quite often, you know, we'll have contracts where we dry it down to 12%. Why would you do that? One of the things about malting, most malters now produce very, very large batches. So you're talking up in the hundreds of tonnes. There are some smaller maltings there and smaller batch sizes. So within a large batch of malt, if we're taking, say, a batch of 200 tonnes of barley, within that 200 tonnes, there's going to be lots of variations in terms of the moisture and potentially. So if we're trying to soak that grain, which we call steeping, up to, say, 44 45% moisture, if some of the grains are starting from 12%, mm-hmm. and some are starting from 14 and some from 15 well, after two days of steeping, they're liable to end up at another range of moistures. We want to put a consistent raw material into the process, for example, all at 12% moisture or all at 13% moisture. So after its steeping process, it's all at 44%, for example, rather than having that variation. And that affects the moment it germs? Well, I'll throw another buzzword out. I use the word modification, which is an important word in malting. But another really important word in malting is homogeneity. We want the grains at the end, those malt grains, to all be the same. Brewer or a distiller or a malt extract producer does not want to have to work with a batch of malt where three quarters of it is very, very well modified and a quarter is very under-modified. That will cause problems in the on-processes. That's one of the things we have to work to, towards having a very homogenous product. So equal grain sizes going into the process, an even nitrogen, an even moisture content, And of course, there are other things with moisture as well. Grain itself, I mean, in nature, it ripens, it falls into the field, it sits there for a while, it gets rained on and would then germinate and grow. In the malting process, we can't afford to wait for nature. We've got to make that grain grow when we want to. So by drying the grain and applying some heat, it breaks that natural dormancy of the grain and allows us to malt it when we want to. Going back to food safety, by storing grain at lower moisture contents, there's less chance of insect infestations, less chance of fungal (laughs) issues. There's all sorts of good reasons to dry grain, notwithstanding that it's a very costly process. And getting more costly by the Mm, second. Which comes back to the homogeneity, the consistency of every grain being the same. If you went walking across a field, you took samples from a field as a combine went through it, from the top of the hill to the bottom 
across the width of it. The nitrogen range within a field can go from yeah. 1.97 to yeah. 1.15 yeah. in any field. That's always been one of the things. I mean, it's the bulk of the sample collectively that's mm. the reading. I remember doing an experiment about 40 years ago where they took a sample of every single trailer, every single unloading mm. of the combine, actually, and did a nitrogen test on all of them. And the range was, as I said, actually some was over 2% from around the headlands. And the point is that, you know, by definition, it's never going to be 1.37 no. across yeah. every grain. I totally it? accept that. And we have to think realistically about homogeneity and what we mean by it. A single grain of malt is in itself not homogenous mm. because the way malting works, the water enters the grain at one end called the micropile end and it modifies along the length of the grain. So at the end of the process, once we've killed that malt, one end of the grain is likely to be slightly more modified than the other end. <laughs> in fact, the old thing in malting is with the malt is rub, when you rub grains in between your finger and thumb to feel how it's modified. If it's a little bit underdone, you can end up what's called hard ends, because it's the end of the grain hasn't modified. So we have to be realistic about what homogeneity actually means. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. I hope everyone's grabbing all of this because lots of the explanation of, you know, I mean, I always go from the angle of farmers and how they're done down by us terrible merchants, but the reality of the costs and the process Mm. and why things are done hopefully will take away some of the debate because the product that's produced from a field is not exact. No matter how hard you try, you're never going to be able to get it absolutely immaculately identical, are you? No, you're not. One of the beauties of being a malter in East Anglia is that whilst we like relatively low nitrogen barleys, we do generally here make a range of malts. So we do have call for some high nitrogen barleys. So that puts a lot of emphasis at the intake part of the malting plant on segregating your barleys correctly then. Mm. You've got opportunities to potentially split loads. You can put the low nitrogens in one bin, the medium somewhere else, and the high nitrogen somewhere else, mm. all for different malt types with different customers in mind. Yeah. That is probably one of the benefits of being a maltster in East Anglia. But going back to homogeneity, we accept we're working on tolerances, and they're not very, very tight tolerances, but they have to be as tight as we realistically can make it. Look, you know, I was brought up at a site in Rackheath working with Algetis. They were bulkers, they were mm. blenders, so the job was to meet a certain specification. And I'm not bright enough to change the plan. I know how that works. So I am, by definition, as someone who lots of maltsters, you know, will go, he's put some high nitrogen there. Our nitrogen spec hits the spot because our job is to put slightly higher nitrogen and slightly lower nitrogens together and achieve the goal mm. the homogeneity as much as you can get and we pride ourselves on achieving it in any given year we know what our spec is I don't see that as a sin personally but as I say some people do there's a balance there if you're averaging a 1.6 nitrogen by blending 1.9 and 1.1 one, one, yeah. then you're probably yeah, that's a bit you're tough. pushing it a yeah, bit yeah, then, and, yeah, and a malt will notice that in the yeah, process, yeah. and the brewer and the yeah. would notice in the malt. Yeah. But if you're averaging one six by blending one five and one seven, or one five five one six five, that's realistic. Yeah, that's the point. But our job. The store here is a cooperative store, and my job is to make as much money as I can for those farmers. If the stuff gets to 1.65, it's out. That's very, very harsh and doesn't make them want to grow it. If I can bring in their 1.71 in with some 1.3s, 1.4s, and my average spec, say, well under the 1.65, it's, say, 1.59 average, it means that the safety net is much greater for people to keep growing the product. The risk aspect, this is purely from a farmer Mm -hmm. angle and the merchant trading with them. If I can take some of the risk out for them, then it's a service I have to provide and I do that within the bulking Mm. within the blending that we do Mm. but in the end you know the barley we deliver to you is going to hit the nail on the head as it has done the last few years and hopefully when we deliver the rest of the stuff this year it'll keep doing it as well yeah we've had some very good barley from you so far 
Yeah, and there was a point during this harvest where I talked about this with Bob King, where the realisation that the barley wasn't perfect, you know, some of the spring barley in particular wasn't perfect and some of the winter barley was too thin. The adaptation, the fact that you're prepared to swing and move to that and go, right, I know what I'm dealing with, we can make that work, that's the line. Not, it doesn't meet it, out you go. Yeah, you've um, got to be real. I've said the word realistic several times. I, well, I think we have to be realistic and you have to take each crop on its merits and uh, you do the best you can with it. Well, it encourages us to say this is what we've got as opposed to polish it up and pretend it's something and it isn't you know put some makeup on and uh, yeah. breathe well, in personally I'd, I'd much rather everyone was open rather than trying to hide things up well you have to be clever to do that and i can't do that anyway martin i really do appreciate you coming in and You're being welcome. hoodwinked to do this but i hope i'm very certain that there's lots of our farmer customers certainly but out there there's people who have learned a massive amount today about why and what all the reasons for the happinesses and the miseries of malting barley trading occur you're absolutely welcome. Malting something I've done for a long time. It's something I've got a bit of a passion about, so happy to talk to you about it. Cool. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released. And follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich.